Hey everyone, it's Caleb, and I'm so excited that you've decided to spend a few minutes of your day here with me on the Learner's Corner podcast today. I'm I am honored to be joined by Sarah Robinson, who has recently released a brand new book, I Love Jesus, But I Want to Die, Finding Hope in the Darkness of Depression. And one of the reasons why I was so excited to talk with Sarah Robinson and have her on the podcast is because of uh, her journey with mental health. And we get into a whole lot of that as well. But just knowing that we've we've covered mental health on the podcast before, but I knew that it had been a long time since we had uh, intentionally talked about it or I had intentionally sought out someone um, to talk about it. And so that's why I'm so excited to bring her onto the podcast because mental health is something that we need to make sure that we continue to talk about this. And thankfully, it is... It, is becoming more acceptable and for us to talk about mental health. And I be- I truly believe that mental health is something that every- everybody deals with mental health. And from time to time, we-, we tend to be more unhealthy. And from time to time, we tend to be more healthy as well. And I think it it just looks different for for everybody. And sometimes mental health is something that can be, be- it can be more managed and that there's certain things that can that can help us in that. And then there's certain things that are just outside of our control as it concerns mental health as well. But regardless of that, we do want to create a safe place to have these types of conversations, which is the purpose behind the Learner's Corner podcast, to create a safe place to have difficult conversations, to have the type of conversations to where you're not entirely sure of you know, how someone will respond to it. You know, maybe maybe you're afraid that you'll be judged or you'll be shamed or uh, you'll elicit some anger from somebody else because of bringing up a certain subject with it. And here on the podcast, we just want to create the type of place that even if you don't have someone in your life that you feel like, hey, I can have these type of conversations with, and maybe you can listen in for it because that's my story. That's my story for how it was for the longest time of just feeling like, man, there was no one that I could talk with about many of these different things, which ultimately led uh, me and my friend Todd to start the Learner's Corner podcast. And, you know, here we are, you know, however many years later, you know, Todd has moved on for the podcast, but um, that's really the heartbeat behind this podcast. And so uh, before we get into my conversation with Sarah, I do want to tell you about something, or I do want to give you a recommended resource that uh, I've been you know, really enjoying lately that helps along the lines of more of um, the controllable mental health side of things. And it's from John Acuff, and the book is called uh, Soundtracks, and it deals with overthinking. You know, the subtitle to it is called The Surprising Solution to Overthinking. And it's a book that I'm really enjoying right now. I'm uh, almost completely all the way through it. But one of the things that has really stood out to me from it is that he talks about the power of uh, positive statements in there. And you know me, I'm I'm not really like a positive statement type of um, person. You know, sometimes that could feel a little bit weird to me. But one of the things that he talked about in there, which is stood in, which is why I am trying the positive statement type of thing, is he said, you know, we have all of these thoughts that go through our head that aren't necessarily true, and yet we still think them. Why is it so different with the positive ones as well? And so that really challenged me to start thinking like, okay, what's the harm in saying some of these uh, positive statements for it? And so that's something that I've just kind of adopted as well, or I'm, I am I am adopting and trying to figure out, you know, how it'll work for me. Maybe we'll, uh, I'll try to keep you updated 
on that, maybe. But anyway, that is my Learner's Corner recommended resource of the week, Soundtracks by John Acuff. Now, without any further, actually, there is going to be a little bit of a further wait. Uh, I want to tell you a little bit about Sarah Robinson. She is an author and speaker who helps others discover that mental illness doesn't disqualify them from living rich, beautiful lives in Christ. Drawing from a decade of ministry experience in the mental health field, Sarah helps readers fight for wholeness and cultivate joy. And so now, without any further wait, here is my conversation with Sarah Robinson. Well, Sarah, so excited to have you on the podcast today. Uh, talk about your story and your brand new book, I Love Jesus, But I Want to Die, which is an excellent title, by the way. Thanks so much, Caleb. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah. And and just as we're getting started, uh, one of the things that I just wanted to start our conversation with, just to help people get to know you a little bit better, I mean, for people who may not be super familiar, uh, if they don't have anyone close to them who who struggles with mental health, is I would just love to hear, like, do you remember like the first time that you began struggling with mental health in your life? Honestly, I don't because I've dealt with it for longer than I can remember. So mm-hmm. I happen to be someone who dealt with depression, anxiety, um, trauma as a small child. Um, one early memory I have is riding down the highway on our elementary school bus and having these thoughts pop into my head of like jumping out of the back of the school bus and getting run over, like these intrusive thoughts of hurting myself and suicide, which I didn't know wasn't normal because I was like, I don't know, seven or eight at the time. So um, a lot of times, mental health issues have like a certain onset and, you know, teen years are very common in in your twenties after a difficult, um, experience, a trauma, a grief. But for me, it was something that was just kind of a lifelong issue for me. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you said that, you know, it was your normal for a long time Mm -hmm. that you didn't know that anything like that other people didn't feel differently. What was it like whenever you found out, hey, this is like, this is not everybody's experience? Yeah. I think when I really started to register that was after I came to faith in high school. I think I, I was figuring it out a bit in like junior high and early high school. But when I came to faith, it was in an environment that really um, emphasized the joy of the Lord and the promises of God and healing and miracles and things like that. And so I came quickly to understand there is this picture of what like a good Christian, I'm doing air quotes for listeners, um, but what a good Christian should look like. And after, you know, that kind of honeymoon period of faith wore off, I quickly realized my life didn't look like that. And so I began to experience a lot of shame and a lot of hopelessness and despair, even on top of what was already pretty typical for my depression, because I thought I was failing. I thought I was a bad person. I thought, well, you know, maybe these things are true for everyone else around me, but they're not true for me. Maybe God doesn't even like me. Like he probably has to love me because the Bible says God is love and stuff, but he, he surely doesn't like me. 
And so I would say the biggest thing is just experiencing a lot of just really searing shame Mm -hmm. at the sense of just being so different and so inadequate and not matching up with the expectations I had of myself and people people around me had. Mm -hmm. What helped you like learn to deal learn to deal with that shame and, you know, maybe even overcome it as well. Cause I'm sure, I'm sure it's like, I think this is true for a lot of us who, who go through, you know, whether it be mental health or something like that, it's not like a one and done, like you, no. you overcome it. It's I'm sure that stuff, but how, how have you learned to, to deal with that? How did you learn to deal with that shame? It was a really long process for me. Hmm. So I would say the first moment where I began to really confront that shame was in college. I had started self-harming. I was cutting to cope with the pain. And I realized that I couldn't stop and I I needed help. And so there was this couple at my church that um, I'd started getting to know and I felt pretty safe with. And so I showed up on their doorstep like at 10 o'clock one night And just like their front door was open because it was the summer. So I literally just walked into their living room, sat down in a chair across from them and said, this is what's going on. I'm suicidal. I'm cutting. Um, I don't know if I'm going to make it. And um, the husband, Michael, looked at me and said, I'm not disappointed in you. Mm -hmm. And that was so shocking to me and disorienting to me because I was so disappointed in myself that, you know, it was really my first experience of like, oh, maybe I don't have to be ashamed. And it was, there was a long time when I still struggled with it. It took years of therapy and learning to talk with other people about it and really just coming to a place where I I could recognize and accept this is a normal part of my life. It's not ideal. It's not something I want, but it's something I can accept and learn to live with. Um, but yeah, I really, really started with someone looking at me and saying like, hey, you're not a bad person because you deal with this. Mm-hmm. Do you remember what it felt like whenever you heard like those words, I'm not disappointed in you? Oh, yeah. Um, gosh, it was shocking. I remember feeling like, you know, that feeling when like your stomach just drops Mm-hmm. Like I felt that and I just didn't know what to say. I feel like my mouth dropped open and I was just thinking like, what are you talking about? And it just like those words just rolled around in my head for days and days and days um, because I just couldn't fathom somebody responding like that to something that I was so ashamed of. Mm-hmm. I, one of the things that it made me uh, think of that I would just love your thoughts on is that, you know, uh, I think for, for many of us who are listening, we've been lucky enough to have someone who's like that, who's believed in us more than we've even believed in ourselves. And um, I would just love to hear, you know, kind of maybe two thoughts. One, like your thoughts on maybe the power of having someone like that mm-hmm. in your life. And two, um, What's helped you to maybe move closer to like what Michael said uh, to you of like you believing I'm not disappointed in myself? That's awesome. I think there have definitely been people who 
have wanted to respond well, I think, but have said maybe some cliches and some hurtful things like, oh, just pray more, read your Bible, choose joy, like this too shall pass. And I always wanted to like punch them in the face. (laughs) Um, But there really is, the reality is that most people want you to feel better. Most people don't want you to be suffering. And the trick is like finding people who not only have that heart for you, but maybe have some tools and like tend to respond compassionately and kindly. And when you find those people, and you can you can really start to notice who those people are by how they respond to other people's hard stuff. Like, look at that person you work with. How did they respond when somebody lost their grandma? How did they respond when, um, you know, their spouse lost their job or whatever? Like, if they're responding kindly and compassionately, those are people you can go to with your pain. And the power of having someone like that is just knowing that you're not alone. And it sounds so simple, but when we're in that really dark place, we don't want somebody to tell us, um, just do these things and it'll make you better. We want someone to say, I'm with you in the darkness. I'll walk with you however long it takes to get better. And, you know, part of learning to believe those things is intentionally reminding yourself of the good things people say about you, of um, the things that you learn, you know, the moments you overcome. One of my practices um, is to journal. And when I'm really struggling, I will write down lists of times I thought I messed up and it turned out I actually didn't, or times when I felt like God came through for me, or um, just lists of kind things people say about myself so that I can start talking to myself the way that other people talk to me. Because nobody would ever be as cruel to us as we are to ourselves. I mean, you know, obviously if you're in like, a relationship that's toxic or abusive, yeah. that's a different thing. But like, I would never say the things to other people that I've said to myself. And so learning to speak kindly to myself, the way that I would speak to someone I care deeply about has been huge for starting to move towards that. I'm not disappointed in you. You're not a terrible person. Mm-hmm. Do you like, do you say that stuff out loud? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I talk about that in the book and how, um, how silly it feels sometimes. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, just the the idea of like, I don't know. It, I I find that I can't think the opposite of what I'm saying at the same time. Mm. Like if I'm saying if I'm trying to think these thoughts in my head, like think kind thoughts, um, my mind can easily wander. But if I stop and say like, hey everybody messes up. It's okay. You're doing a good job. Like you're not a bad person for this. I can't really think the opposite at the same time. And so it kind of disrupts those thought patterns for me. Mm -hmm. Uh, I want to go back to something that you said, you know, you talked about how, uh, whenever we, you know, encounter people who are hurting, whether that be or struggling with mental health, but I think it, I think it applies to people who are in pain or people who are in, in some type of suffering. We tend to go to the cliches and that they don't tend to help really that yeah. much. I, I would love to hear 
like what what have you you know either received or what have you learned about hey like if you're encountering somebody who is struggling with mental health or is in pain like these are some actual helpful things that can be said mm-hmm. to this person that actually mean a lot yeah absolutely i think the first thing to know and kind of the posture to hold on to is that you don't have to fix it I think that's often why we try to go to those cliches because they pass off as truth. And we think, oh, this will make the person feel better. Um, but they don't. They're incredibly minimizing. And we don't, that's not our heart. We're not trying to make someone feel bad. So, you know, think about a time when you were hurting and somebody responded well. You know, it may have just been like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry you're going through this. Or can you tell me more about that? Or what was that like? Or gosh, just something as simple as, I'm so glad you're talking to me about this. I'm honored that you would trust me like this. I don't know what to do, but I'll help you figure it out. Um, I want you to know that I'm with you in this and I'll walk with you however long it takes to get through it. And you know, I love you and I care about you and I'm concerned about you. All of those things come from just a really honest place, but they're also kind of vulnerable to say as the helper. Um, And it can feel a little bit risky as the loved one to say like, man, I don't know what to do, but I love you and I'm with you in this. Mm -hmm. Um, But you can never underestimate the power of those really simple and kind and compassionate words. They are so incredibly powerful to make someone feel seen and cared for and safe. And when somebody's struggling with their mental health and even maybe contemplating suicide, that can be enough to give them hope to keep fighting. Mm-hmm. Uh, any ideas uh, about what what do you think it is that dr- has this drive in us to want to, you know, quote unquote, fix the situation, you know, whenever it comes to other people? You know, it's uncomfortable to sit in someone else's pain. Um, We have these things in our brain called mirror neurons, and they literally reflect somebody else's experience. They're um, the things that scientists are discovering that help us to experience empathy. And our brains don't always know the difference between a story that we're like reading or watching or someone's telling us and something happening to ourselves. And so hearing about somebody else's pain hurts and it can be tough to just sit with that. And so I think on a subconscious level, sometimes we're trying to relieve our own discomfort, which is, you know, not ideal, but it's also a very human and natural response. We don't want to sit in the pain or the confusion, or depending on how close this person is, if they're our child or our spouse or something like that, we might have thoughts of like, have I failed this person? Is this my fault? How have I hurt them to cause this? And so I think there's a very natural drive to want to relieve our own pain, but also like, we just don't want to see someone else hurting. And so if we think we can take a shortcut to relieve their pain with just a few words, um, you know, we're probably going to try and do it, but it just, it's just not that simple in the real world. Mm -hmm. 
well, one of the things that I wanted to ask you about is what are some of the things that, um, unless you are, are struggling with mental health yourself, you probably don't realize about mental health? Hmm. One of the things, particularly when you get into more severe cases, you know, where someone is not able to function, where they're having thoughts of suicide, where they're um, coping with self-harm, is that there's, I mentioned these earlier, there's something called intrusive thoughts. And that means that one of the symptoms of certain mental health conditions is that thoughts will come into your head that you don't want to think, that you um, would never consider in a healthy time, and they're very compelling. And so a lot of times um, people start to think about suicide or hurting themselves or self-harm. These thoughts just come into your head all the time. It's like having a horror movie in your mind and you can't turn it off. Um, Something else I would say is that depression in particular um, isn't necessarily sadness. It's also numbness. It's also brain fog. It's also an inability to understand what you're reading or um, anger. Or it's this very complex interplay of physical and emotional symptoms. A lot of people get their diagnosis for an anxiety disorder or depressive disorder because they think they're actually having a heart attack or because they're not able to sleep or because um, they're having migraines. So we think it's, we call it mental health and we think it's in our heads, but it's very physiological. It's very much in your entire body system as well. Mm. Talk about a little bit more of how, how that ends up playing itself out. You know, the connection between what you're saying with, you know, the mind and how that works and how it plays itself out into our physical bodies as well. Yeah. I think we like to have this perspective that they're separate and they're not. The mind is part of the body. The brain is part of the body. And, you know, scientists are finding, we have this, um, you know, a, a popular theory of depression is the chemical imbalance theory, which there is a lot of validity to that. There are chemicals and neurotransmitters and things like that that are disrupted or deficient or, um, just out of whack in people with mental health conditions. But that's not the whole story. So now we're finding um, inflammation in your whole body plays a big role in it. Um, there can be issues in your gut that can play a big role in it. There can be issues with your thyroid or vitamin deficiencies that can play a big role in it. And so One of the things that we need to do and that I really had to learn in my life is that um, looking at any one aspect of mental health is going to be insufficient for us to actually live a healthy life. There's something called the biopsychosocial model, which means that we have to look at our bodies, our biology, our psychology, what's going on in our heads, what, you know, trauma we've experienced. And our social situations, our relationships, and our circumstances. And if we don't address all three in our lives, 
we're not going to get to that healthy place that, um, even with a mental health diagnosis, I have chronic depression. I'm probably going to live with it for the rest of my life, but by addressing all of those areas, I can live a really healthy life and a really fulfilled life and a happy life, even when I have hard days and weeks and months. Mm-hmm. Absolutely love what you're saying because it's very like you're taking back control of your life in a sense, not maybe not absolutely in, in a complete sense, but you're looking at, well, I can't control, you know, necessarily when, you know, I experience some of these thoughts, but I can control, you know, the, you know, what you're saying with the body and even surrounding yourself with community and everything. Absolutely. It's, it is this dance of learning to accept what's outside of your control. I can't control my diagnosis. I can't control when, like today we're having um, some bad weather and storms and that can be a trigger for me just because there's less daylight and that can make me have a harder day. So I can't control the weather. I can't control um, anything about that or how I'm going to feel, but I can make choices that cultivate um, hope and cultivate joy. I can choose to be more intentional about how I eat, about reaching out to a friend, about telling my husband this morning, I'm having a hard day. Everything's great and everything's fine. And I feel really sad for no reason. Um, can I have a hug, you know, and being intentional to do the really practical things, the watching your diet, going to therapy, taking your meds, whatever it is. Um, we do have a lot of agency, um, which is, you know, kind of the psychological term we would use for having a sense of control over your life. And we also can't just fix everything. We have to accept some of the things as being outside of our control. And I think both of them are keys to really being able to walk in some level of health and thriving despite a mental health diagnosis. Yeah. One of the things that is, it's just so apparent talking with you and even reading through the book is, and you, you even mentioned there a little bit, like just accepting, accepting like what, you know, what life has given you or this, uh, or your depression or your mental health struggles. I would love, like, how did you get there? Because I, you know, and I know that that's a that's a big question too, and I'm sure, sure a years long question. Uh, yeah. And still, I'm even sure you know just something that you have to work through every day. But I think that's man, that is just so hard. I think for us to do whenever we experience just hard times is to mm-hmm. accept it. What talk talk to me a little bit about your process of learning to accept you know what you're going through and everything. Yeah, I think you know being a person of faith and being someone who I was a youth pastor. I've worked in ministry. Um, I had a perspective for a long time that being a good leader meant um, really resisting these things in my life. And I had a leader look at me, a mentor of mine. And I, I mean, I'd been dealing with depression my whole life. I was probably 26 or 27 at this point. I'd been in ministry for years She looked at me and she said, honey, you deal with depression. And she really gave me permission to face that. And she said, you need to learn to take good care of yourself. And that was the first time that I really thought like, oh, like this woman who I really admire 
is saying, you need to take care of yourself. And she was saying that because she dealt with it too, and she could recognize it in me. Mm. So I feel like that was the first step in that process. Um, Over the next few years after that, I really continued to wrestle with like, okay, maybe I can accept that this is a thing for me now, but maybe I can still figure it out and get over it. Um, and there's a story in the Bible about this guy named Jacob. And he has this crazy experience where for some wild reason, he winds up wrestling God. And he, um, he's like not giving up and he's wrestling God. So like God can obviously kick his butt, but he just like will not let go. And eventually, um, when the sun's coming up, God is like, Hey, let me go. And he's like, no, I'm not going to let you go unless you bless me. And so God gives him a new name and blesses him, but also like dislocates his hip in the process. Um, and So for the rest of his life, Jacob had a limp. And so he had to learn to live with a limp for the rest of his life. And he got a new name as part of his blessing, Israel, which means he struggles with God and prevails. Um, But the word for prevail means endure. Mm. It doesn't just mean like you won. It means you hung on through the pain and the long, dark night. And you overcame that way. And so I had some friends talk to me about that story and um, just kind of say like, hey, you've been wrestling through like a long, dark night and, you know, it didn't turn out how you wanted to, but like you can learn how to live with this limp, but you also don't have to let it define you. And I think that was another moment where I, just began to, you know, kind of sit back and think like, okay, if like Jacob, I'm going to have this limp for the rest of my life and it's going to be part of my life. Like, what does that look like? How does that impact me? How do I learn to slow down? You know, if you've got a limp, you can't move as fast as other people. How do I, um, set myself up for success so that when I'm going into a season that's going to be hard or difficult that I can, you know, not let this define me, but kind of plan around it to make sure that I'm taking the best care of myself. I can. Mm-hmm. And uh, talk, talk a little bit about like, what did that, you know, what did, what did your wrestling look like with God? Because, you know, that's mm-hmm. the, that's part of the thing too, you know, for, for people of faith, for people who, you know, follow Jesus, it's like, not only do we have to, we have to deal with the fact of God at some level, you could take the, like you could take this away if yeah. you wanted to. What did that look like for you? That was a really big part of my process for a long time. Mm-hmm. I remember I used to yell at God and I used to say like, I know you've got a magic wand up there somewhere. Like, why don't you just wave it? And being in some church cultures that were a little bit tinged with some subtle prosperity gospel stuff, not like God's going to give you a jet, but more like if you do the right things, God's going to bless you. Like Mm -hmm. if you pray enough and you read your Bible and you show up and all of that, like you're going to be healthy and, you know, have all the things you need. 
but that wasn't happening. And so I had to come to terms with the fact that um, sometimes God lets suffering remain. In fact, he does that more often than not. I think we get this idea when we read the Bible that the miracles were the norm, but they were the exception. I mean, like I talk about um, the pool of Bethesda and there's this story in the gospels where Jesus comes up to this pool and there's tons and tons of people there who are sick and they're trying to get into the water because they believe if they can get into the water first, they'll get healed after it like bubbles up. Jesus walks up to this one man who's been sick for 38 years and he heals him. And it's a beautiful story, but Jesus walked right past the multitudes of people who were there. And he like, I imagine the way it's described, it was so crowded. He probably literally stepped over people. And that's tough to deal with. That's tough to wrestle with because God can heal. God is able. God is big enough. And sometimes he does. But I really had to learn that often the greater victory of faith is walking with God through the darkness and trusting him in the fire instead of like, oh, look, I did all the right things and I put all the right payment in my little vending machine faith and I got healed. Yeah. Uh, expound on that a little bit more about like, what does, what does trusting God look like for you, you know, in, in that, uh, in that darkness or whenever your prayers aren't being answered? Yeah. I have the benefit now of doing this for almost 20 years. So it's easier now. It's a lot easier now to know that the darkness may always be there, but God will always be there in the darkness. It's a lot easier now to know, like, I've gone through depressive episodes before. I can recognize my symptoms. Dark days aren't going to last forever. And that is something I'm grateful for because the long road of walking with God in the darkness has taught me I can really trust him as a comforter, as someone I can be really honest with, as someone I can yell at and say, I don't understand this. Why won't you fix me? Um, Early on, it was a lot harder. And I think it's one of those things there's no shortcut for. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as something practical and the nitty gritty is I remind myself of every good thing I can think of. I try to really focus on the teeny tiny, almost insignificant gifts in my life because I believe that God made this world and wove millions of gifts through it for us. And so when I feel so much despair and so much darkness and when I'm struggling with depression the worst, I'll get out my notebook and I'll start listing things like the taste of a tangerine, that ridiculous thing that my sister texted me that my nieces said, um, that inside joke with someone from three years ago. And I'll just start writing every happy thing. and. It reminds me that 
no matter how dark it gets, God is still there, that he still places beautiful, tiny things in my life, um, that he's present. And then when I can get step back a little more, I can start thinking about like, well, this is what the Bible says. And I found this to be true in the past, or here's the time when God did answer my prayer, but not the way I wanted to. And here's a time when God worked something out better than I could have imagined. And so it's just like so much of it is the work of talking to myself um, and then bringing my anger and my pain and my hurt and my lament to God in a really, like really honest way. Yeah. Uh, One of the things that you talk about in the book, which you even, you even say in the book, it's a little counterintuitive is you talk about like the practice of sitting in the dark. Yeah. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I don't like that one. Um, (laughs) So um, I had gotten to a place in my faith and in my my mental health um, where I felt like I was doing pretty well. And I had learned to manage a lot of my symptoms a lot better. um, But there were some issues I was afraid to look at, some. some trauma, some hurt, some old wounds. And I really felt this invitation from God to like, hey, why don't you come sit with me and let's look at these things? Like, let's work on these things. And for me, that included finding a really good therapist. And I was like, I'm good. I'm good. Like, I'm, my life is fine. I'm pretty healthy. All of that's great. Um, and What's interesting is as I resisted that sort of invitation to sit in the dark, um, my depression and anxiety got really loud. Hmm. And like I had thought I was really good, but as I sort of resisted the opportunity to experience a greater level of healing, all of my symptoms started to flare up more and more. And I don't think that was God being like, here, let me make you feel (laughs) terrible so that you'll actually do this. But I do think there's something when we resist something that we think is scary, it gets all the scarier to us and it Mm -hmm. creates stress and creates pain for us. And so I had to really learn to look at some of the hard things in my life, look at the lies I believed, look at the habits I had that were undermining my mental health, look at how I was afraid to care for myself, how I was afraid to open up and be really honest about what's going on in my life or what has happened in my life. And doing that in the presence of a really well-trained, trauma-informed therapist, um, was absolutely life altering. Mm -hmm. And that was the first time I really had a good experience with a therapist as well. I had some challenging, um, experiences before that because I didn't know what to look for. So I would say that practice of sitting in the dark, it's not about wallowing in our pain. It's not about rehearsing all of these horrible things that have happened to us. Um, it's about getting really honest and doing what we need to do to find healing in the midst of things that are very, very painful. 
Mm. Uh, there's a couple things off of that that I want to ask you about. Um, the first thing is what? How did you deal with the the thing of like you you feel like you're experiencing? And I feel like this is this is this is almost everybody's story, probably <laughs> or a lot of people's stories. But like you feel like, hey, I'm doing well. You know, hey, I'm doing. Yeah, you know, I feel like I'm doing healthy, and then all of a sudden, things just go in the tank. Either because you know it's things like, hey, you know, God is you know drawing your attention to something, or maybe in other people's cases, it's like a, it's a relapse or anything like that. What helped you deal with, like just like overcome, like almost overcoming it, like a second time? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So. For me, by this point, I had learned that um, I had learned that I have depressive episodes, which is a very common presentation of depressive disorder, clinical depression, um, which means you will have seasons that really, really suck Mm -hmm. and where your symptoms flare up and those seasons do tend to end eventually. They end a lot sooner if you're getting good treatment. Um, For me, I would have ones that would last, you know, a year or more. Um, Whereas now that I take good care of myself, you know, it might be a few weeks that are hard and like not nearly as hard. So having a track record and just the knowledge that depression is often a cyclical disorder is helpful. It's really helpful. But I also had to really pull from times in the past where I had gone through really difficult things, maybe that weren't even related to mental health. Um, Prior to this, I had gone through an experience where I was working a job I absolutely loved. And it was like a dream position for me um, at a nonprofit and my position was eliminated because of funding. Mm -hmm. And I had moved across the country for this job. I had uprooted my whole life. I had nowhere to go and didn't know what to do. And so I had to, um, in a time where I was afraid and hopeless, like I, I had to trust God through that. And eventually he brought me into something even better. Um, so I had to, look back to some of those times that I'd gotten through really, really hard things. And again, with acceptance, just realizing like, this is how it is. There's going to be hard times. Um, The good news is that as you learn tools and skills that you can apply to each of them, they just, they get a little bit easier as you go. So yes, I may still have depressive episodes for the rest of my life. I may have um, times when I struggle for the rest of my life, but I have tools now that I didn't have two years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago. And so if I apply them and if I use them, I'm not going to get in as bad of a place. And so it's just like a million times better because I have resources that help me. Mm-hmm. The other thing that you mentioned uh, is, you know, finding a therapist as well, yeah. which, which reading the book, like that was one of the biggest, like your section on that was one of the biggest learnings for me of like, you know, you're, when you write 
and say how there's really not like a consensus, like legal definition for, you know, for a counselor and how depending on where you live and everything, the standards, they vary and sometimes they're low. Um, Yeah. And I feel like, I mean, it just seems like I've always been a, a proponent of counseling and especially after, you know, the year of 2020 and still dealing with COVID and everything. We I know all need it. I was going to say, we all need it. I think it's yeah. always good for people to go to counseling because we all just, we all just got stuff that we got to deal with. Yeah. Um, but I would just love some of your thoughts on like, what are some of the things that you have looked through, looked for that have helped indicate like, Hey, this is, this is a good counselor. And you know, on the flip side, what are the, some, some of the things to where you're like, Oh man, you see this, you run. Yeah, absolutely. So what you were referencing is the fact that, um, at least in the United States, you can call yourself a counselor without any licensing if you are, in most states, if you're acting in a pastoral or ministerial capacity. So on one hand, you know, being a country that really values freedom of religion and things like that, um, a lot of people um, really value that. The problem with that though, is that you can run into folks who, um, like at one point I went to see someone who called herself a board certified Christian psychologist. Now that makes you think they have a doctorate of psychology. Um, what it actually meant is that she, um, had done some very some very lightweight distance courses over the course of maybe like a few months um, from an organization that was eventually shut down for being essentially a fake school. Mm-hmm. And so she didn't know anything about psychology. She was not equipped in any way to deal with a real mental health diagnosis. And it was a very damaging experience. Um, so for me, as somebody who has a mental health diagnosis, who has trauma in my background, who's experienced some tough stuff, I will not go to somebody who is not an actual licensed by their state therapist. Now, even if somebody's licensed in your state, that doesn't mean they're going to be a good fit for you. Um, They've found that the majority of what predicts whether your therapy will be successful is your relationship with the therapist. So you have to feel safe with them. You have to know you can trust them. Um, You have to know that they're following good privacy practices, that they're not talking about other clients to you or talking about you to other clients. And then the other thing is making sure they specialize in what you need. So a grief counselor or a therapist who specializes in grief is not going to have the same tool bag as somebody who um, specializes in trauma-informed care or somebody who specializes in working with um, survivors of abuse or natural disasters or things like that. Or a marriage and family therapist is going to be completely different than somebody who um, specifically works with teens and adolescents. So you really want to make sure you're finding someone who specializes in what you need And then I always say, give it up to three sessions. If there's no red flags, that's long enough to find out if you feel safe enough with them, if you feel like you can really talk to them, if you feel like you're being heard, 
And if not, break up with them and no shame, try again. Yeah. Uh, Before, uh, I got one other question I want to ask you, but before that, I know that there's a lot of stuff in the book, but is there anything that we haven't covered in terms of mental health that you're like, man, I really want to make sure that we talk about this thing? Gosh, we've covered a lot of ground. This we have covered a conversation. lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think I sort of mentioned this, but one thing that I really want people to know is um, that it can get better, mm-hmm. that a mental health diagnosis is not a death sentence, that it does not mean you're doomed to live a terrible life, and that things can never get better. There are resources and there are tools and there's really, really good help available. Um, And you're worth whatever it takes to get better. That's Mm -hmm. the one thing that I would want people to take away, whether you are um, the person struggling or you want to help a loved one, just that message, God is with you and there's good help and you're worth whatever it takes to get better no matter how long it takes, no matter how much work it is, um, that would be the one thing that I would hope people would walk away with. Mm. That you saying that sparks, it sparked a, another quote from the book. Um, you know, you write that depression is different when you don't hate yourself. Yeah. Uh, two quick things off of that. How, how is it different? And then what has helped you love yourself better? Yeah. So depression will make you hate yourself. It's one Mm. of the symptoms. Self-hatred is a symptom of it. But when when you see yourself as a valuable person, someone who is worthy of care and love, you fight a lot harder against those waves of depression that come. You realize, man, I may feel awful, but I deserve to eat healthy. I deserve to um, get the rest I need. I deserve to have good people in my life. Not because of anything I've done, but because God made me worthy. God made me precious. God cares about me. And so learning to believe those kind things that God says about me and to believe I'm loved by God, by other people. Um, that's been a huge part of learning to care well for myself. And, you know, so much of that goes back to changing the way I talked to myself. And mm-hmm. over time, just consistently and kindly and compassionately talking to myself the way I would a beloved child has really helped me to move past it just being words in my head to being something I actually feel in my heart where I don't hate myself. I do care for myself. I'm grateful um, for my life. You know, Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. And the level of love that Jesus lined out for us is like amazing. And he wants us to love ourselves like that in order for that to be a standard for us to love other people. So yeah, like that takes some practice for those of us who struggle with our mental health, but that's what Jesus expects of how I treat myself. Mm -hmm. 
And the last thing that I want to ask is, what have you learned about God through, uh, through your struggles with mental health that maybe you wouldn't have learned if you didn't struggle with mental health? I've learned that God is so kind and so mm-hmm. patient. And my favorite thing about God is that name, Emmanuel, that means God with us, that, you know, that talks, that is talking about Jesus coming to earth to be with us, but he's with us still. He's with us in everything and every hard circumstance. He doesn't like distance himself from us when we mess up. He's not like looking at his watch and tapping his feet and thinking like, oh my gosh, I wish you would just get over this already. Um, He's with us, like closer than our breath. Um, Psalm 139 says, if I make my bed in hell, you're there. And I just, I can't imagine having this confidence in God being present in my life if I hadn't gone through really hard things and seen him be there in the midst of it. Hmm. Well, Sarah, I know that people are going to want to pick up your book, I Love Jesus, But I Want to Die, and continue to follow you as well. So where's the best place for people to go to do those things? Best place to find me is my website, sarahjrobinson.com. There's a link to um, all the info about the book, my social media, all the good things. And I'd love to connect with people there. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. Thanks so much, Caleb. I think coming out of the conversation with Sarah, one of the things that has really stood out uh, from our conversation, really from her book as well, is just kind of that part that we were talking about, about um, counselors and just being very careful of of who you who you allow yourself to be counseled by. And I think the thing for me that I've just been thinking through is just being just more, I guess, more careful about who are you allowing to speak into your life and being more aware of who is who is trying to speak into your life. And so I think for me, that's part of the thing that I've just been thinking through is who am I allowing to speak into my life? Who am I allowing to influence me? And that's bigger than counseling, but it's also part of counseling as well. And, you know, I've I've gone to counseling before of just making sure that you have somebody who truly, who wants your best interests, who has your best interests at heart, who is set to, who wants to help you succeed. And I know that that's tough because maybe you don't feel like you have somebody who who can do that. Maybe you don't feel like you have somebody who who you feel like you can talk with them about. And I and I would just suggest for it of if you feel like there is somebody who might possibly be that person, I would just test it out. And maybe not give them like your deepest darkest secrets to see how they respond. But or it's not even just it's not even just the secrets part. It's even what we talked about with the purpose of the podcast of whether or not you're being afraid of being judged with somebody or being judged from somebody or experiencing judgment from somebody uh, bringing up certain topics. And I think probably one of the best ways to just know of whether or not somebody is safe is just to do it. It's just to ask. Is just to start out with maybe a little bit smaller of a conversation. Just see how it goes. See how they respond to that. 
see if, hey, they, this person is a safe person. And if they respond well, then maybe you try it again. And maybe it's a little bit more this time and then a little bit more after that. All I know is that the best relationships take time. No relationship starts out, you know, at the maximum potential of whatever it will be. Everybody had to start at the same place to where you're starting right now. And they started by taking a risk. They started by being vulnerable. And yes, sometimes they failed and sometimes people didn't respond the way that they wanted them to. But that's just part of the risk. That's part of being vulnerable. That's part of loving other people is being willing to just put yourself out there. And I know that that's tough, but it's worth it. And I could just, I say that from experience. And so, yeah, didn't know that we were going to go, uh, that deep, I guess, at the end of the of what I'm thinking about. But regardless, uh, thank you so much for listening to today's episode of The Learner's Corner, uh, where we get deep from time to time here. And uh, if you enjoyed this episode, the best way to make sure that you don't miss any episode of The Learner's Corner podcast is by subscribing on whatever podcast player you use or hitting that follow button. I know that a lot of people are moving to the follow button on those things. Leave a rating, write a review. Those things really do help. And then, yeah, real quick, want to say thank you to Sam Massey, who created the music for the podcast, and Garrett Oler, who does the editing for the podcast as well. And finally, actually, no, not finally, two other people I want to thank. Thanks again to Sarah Robinson for being on the podcast. And thank you for listening all the way to the end of the Learner's Corner podcast. My name is Caleb Mason. And until next time, keep learning and keep growing.